a lot of people are angry at the news that it's too sensational that it's that it only focuses on all the bad stuff the crime and and death and so we believe that there's a a real missed opportunity in a lot of newsrooms to actually understand what people want first and then deliver that to them Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about how digital journalists are sparking innovation. On the phone with me today are Molly de Aguiar and Josh Stearns of the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. Molly and Josh just published a report on what they learned about local news and community engagement after 18 months at the local news lab. Welcome to the podcast, Molly and Josh. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, now, Josh, you and I actually met. You were on the podcast about a year and a half ago uh, when you were in Chicago um, and somebody pointed to you and said, you should interview that man because he's doing something very interesting. We did and we talked a little bit, I think, at that time about what you were starting to do at the Dodge Foundation about local journalism in, in the New Jer- Jersey area. And so now here we are 18 months later and it's you know kind of a really interesting and fascinating report that you guys have put out. So so to start off with, tell me a little bit about local the local news lab. What did you guys set out to do? So the local news lab is um, an initiative of Dodge, and um, we undertook this work to explore what sustainability looks like for local journalism, to, to experiment with different revenue streams for local newsrooms, as well as to test new strategies for community engagement. Our theory of change, essentially, is that sustainability requires both a diversity of revenue streams, but also community engagement strategies that help people feel invested in the work that journalists do. And so this work that we've been doing over the past 18 months and the report that we recently published is really an attempt to document what we've learned so far around these two areas. And so you just published a report, Lessons from the Local News Lab, Building a More Connected and Collaborative News Ecosystem. What were the areas that you were focused on? This report um, takes a deep dive into both what I just mentioned around diversity of revenue streams and community engagement. It's documenting all the business experimentation we've done, as well as the projects, the community engagement projects we're piloting. But the report also shares research that helped us better understand the New Jersey landscape. Um, We share our thinking about building networks to create a more collaborative and connected news ecosystem in New Jersey. And then there's also a section on philanthropy and how philanthropy might better support community news and information initiatives, not just here in New Jersey, but but anywhere. Now, was there a particular reason why you uh, chose New Jersey to to uh, focus on? Yeah, that's easy. We um, the Dodge Foundation is a place based foundation. So we do all of our work in New Jersey. So. New Jersey's our home, and this is what we're focused on. But the interesting thing is that in the course of doing this work, we have attracted partners from around the nation, both the Democracy Fund in Washington, D.C., and the Knight Foundation in Miami, as well as partners, uh, other partners in New Jersey and Philadelphia, who have come to the table, uh, other funders who have said, we're really interested in what you're doing and what it might tell us about communities nationwide. And so we're partnering with a lot of these funders to test experiments in New Jersey that we are hopeful can have uh, an impact and be useful well beyond this state borders. Yeah. And I think you were dealing with six different newsrooms. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Now, what type of newsrooms were there? What, you know, how are they the same? How are they different? What were kind of the problems that they were sort of dealing with? 
In terms of their size and scope, they shared a lot. They were all community news organizations. Most of them are new digital startups that have been around anywhere from you know one year to six years or seven years. But that's about where the similarities end. So, you know, we have someone like Morristown Green, who's a one-person, hyper-local online news site in sort of a well-off suburban community, and it's run by a former Star-Ledger journalist. But then we have a site like New Brunswick Today, which is a local newsroom really focused on watchdog accountability reporting, reporting both in Spanish and in English, publishing online and a bi-monthly newspaper. Brick City Live is a new startup in New Jersey, uh, in um, Newark, New Jersey, one of New Jersey's largest cities. And it was begun by Andea Taylor, who's this fourth generation Newark resident who went through Columbia Journalism School and the CUNY Entrepreneurial Journalism Program. And she came back home to start up a news site to serve her community. Jersey Shore Hurricane News is an online-only Facebook community uh, with 220,000 people that's facilitated by Justin Osiello. And his reporting uh, with that community has been recognized by everyone from the United Way to the White House and earned him a partnership with WHYY, the public radio station in Philly, where he does reporting for. And Justin is actually on the verge of launching a couple of great new projects and a new website. It's the first time he's going to be off of Facebook and on his own site. And we're really excited for what he's going to do there. We also have two sites in New York, and that's partially through our partnership with the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism. The Lowdown is a husband and wife team on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Traven Rice and Ed Litvick. And they come out of filmmaking and network news, actually working for NBC. And they started their own site to cover their neighborhood about seven years ago. And they've done some really interesting work in their community. And then finally, uh, we were working with a site called Sheep's Head Bites, which is now part of the Corner Media Network. It's a network of seven or so local community online sites in Brooklyn. And they're really interesting because we've been able to see through them what is the right size for like a regional network and how do networks of sites work together in ways that are really useful. Um, we have another network in New Jersey called Tap Into, which is the alternative press, and they've got a bunch of sites. So we're looking at both how individual standalone sites can work, how standalone sites can partner with others, and then how these larger networks of sites all can um, test what's the right scale for local news and for different communities. Now, do these organizations, did they come to you or was this something that you were looking for these types of organizations to sort of be part of the experiment? Well, when we launched this, the project, we worked with folks at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism as well as the New Jersey News Commons at Montclair State University. And those two organizations um, are places that are deeply involved with community news sites in their geographic areas. And so they actually identified these six partners as people who were already doing interesting things or really ready to try to test some big ideas and experiment. So we approached them and said, you know, we're going down the road on this two-year experiment. Will you come along with us and see what we can do together? So how how has their journey changed? Where where are they at in general from where they were before? Are they in a in a better place? from a revenue, from a news gathering standpoint? Yeah, so we're actually working with an outside evaluation firm that's been collecting data and doing interviews. And the results so far are really promising. You know, there's no silver bullets and we're not all of a sudden seeing people go from zero to 60 for a car metaphor, but we are seeing dramatic upticks in traffic to their sites, engagement with their audiences, 
and good results in terms of um, revenue numbers increasing across the board. So that's really promising that these alternative revenue streams that we've been testing out and these community engagement efforts are starting to pay off even in a small way and after just 18 months. You know, with with my background, you know, I was 10 years at a, at a community newspaper as the sort of the digital, digital change was occurring. And I began to see how, you know, publications that rely so heavily on local display advertising and uh, classifieds, and then, you know, that advertising drives up. It's difficult for, you know, these publications who may not be that huge to sort of make that shift and to try to find new revenue streams. So I guess what you're exploring are things that are outside of the traditional sort of dis display ad, um, classified ad models that we've had in the past. That's definitely part of it. I mean, we think there's actually still money on the table when it comes to local advertising. And so we've also worked with our sites by helping pay for an ad sales training. For a lot of these folks, they come out of the editorial side, not the business side. And so learning how to sell ads is still a challenge. And so we've worked with people on the basics of ad sales and helping expand that part of their business. But we really believe that that has to be just one piece of the puzzle for these sites. And so we've looked at things like um, membership programs, events, other you know, crowdfunding efforts, and the crowdfunding then can be a one-time boost, an injection of cash. But then how do you take those people who you've mobilized and who have invested in your site and then turn them into longtime supporters, subscribers, members, et cetera? Um, we've also looked at things like side businesses. So one of our sites was already doing a lot of video and he realized that he could monetize that. So in addition to shooting video for news purposes, he started shooting video of school talent shows and sports events, that sort of thing. And parents and other school officials wanted to buy copies of that. So now he's getting hired to do that sort of video on a commercial basis too. And that's helping subsidize the journalism. So part of it is also looking at news organizations, not just as people who fill a website with text, but actually people who have great expertise and skills that can be rearranged and used in new ways to support the journalism that has to happen too. Uh, and so I think the opportunity there is to help people think differently about the different ways they can serve communities. Now, can you give an example of like skills that uh, uh, someone in a newsroom might have that, that they could sort of turn into some sort of revenue stream? Besides, I, I guess you mentioned that the video one, but are there others? Yeah, so the video one I mentioned is one example of that. Another skill that somebody had kind of built into what they were already doing in their newsroom that they realized they could expand on as a revenue stream was digital marketing. So part of this is this idea that a lot of these entrepreneurs are people who have had to, by nature, really dig into how the web works and how to be successful online. And so they've taught themselves how Facebook works, how to get their content out there, that sort of thing. And they have a lot to share with local small businesses. So one of our sites, Brick City Live, and Daya Taylor began doing workshops for local small businesses through the Small Business Administration Office, uh, where she was doing trainings. And was and people were paying to take trainings from her on how to do digital marketing and how to um, take advantage of the tools that she was using for journalistic purposes in terms Terms of getting her content out there, but helping them also reach audiences too. I think at one point in time, that would have been seen as undercutting your own advertising revenue if you're helping people reach people directly. But in this case, the local news site becomes 
a service provider, not just to the community, but also to local small businesses. And it helps build trust and engender a sense of connection across all those different audiences. One of the quotes that you had highlighted in the introduction of your report was, we want to change the relationship between newsrooms and communities in ways that rebuild, rebuild trust, improve journalism, and develop new avenues for local news organizations to become financially and creatively robust. Uh, we talked a little bit about revenue streams, but you also talk a bit about you know community engagement, sort of fostering that relationship between the newsroom and the, the community. Can you sort of talk about uh, what you've done with that? Yeah, we've done a lot of work around this, a lot of testing. So we sort of fundamentally believe that even if you develop a diversity of revenue streams as a local news outlet, those revenue streams still depend upon building um, an engaged community who's ultimately going to invest in your work. And so you can't divorce, you can't really divorce the revenue models from the engagement. And I think that some newsrooms, there's, it seems to be a, a, a range of newsrooms who understand this. Just today, actually, I was reading um, in Media Shift, there's a, a new study by a University of Iowa professor about following a, a Midwestern newspaper and how the culture of the newsroom is that they've embraced the technological changes, but they haven't embraced the, the changes with respect to how they relate to the community. And they remain skeptical of deeper community engagement that would allow them to co-create content with the community. So um, there's a big cultural shift that has to happen. And, and we recognize that. And we recognize that this is, that this is slow, slow work. But there are a number of avenues that we, we are approaching. So in the report, we talk about projects like Harkin and the Listening Post, which we're piloting with um, a number of newsrooms across the state. And they're essentially built on the same premise, which is that journalism ought to first understand what issues and information the community cares about by inviting people into the process from the beginning. And then by doing that, newsrooms can create or co-create stories that they know with certainty that people will care about because they've asked. You know, the traditional model is that newsrooms publish stories and then sort of cross their fingers and hope that people will like those stories. And that doesn't always work out, right? A lot of people complain about the news. A lot of people are angry at the news, that it's too sensational, that it's that it only focuses on all the bad stuff, the crime and, and death. And so we believe that there's a, a real missed opportunity in a lot of newsrooms to actually understand what people want first and then deliver that to them. You know, you hear people talk about human-centered design, and these two initiatives are very much rooted in human-centered design and understanding what people want so that what product you're actually producing for your consumers solves their pro the problems that they've identified as something they need to solve. Can you sort of describe what Harkin and Listening Post is, how they work? Sure. Harkin um, is basically a piece of software that newsrooms integrate into their websites that help invite the community to ask questions that they have about their community. It could be any of a number of things. It could be serious things. It could be not so serious things. There's a public voting process um, to sift through those questions and, and agree upon what questions the newsroom is going to go report upon. But what's unique about the process is that they 
take the the person who is the who has submitted the winning question and they invite them along to do to do the discovery to help find the answer to their question and then they report the answer together on the air so they go on that journey together which makes that person feel invested and engaged in the process and ultimately invested and engaged in in the journalism itself so harkin you know the the software is just a tool it's really about the methodology it's really about how it's turning the the process of traditional journalism on its head by by bringing the listeners and the readers in at the very beginning and really understanding what they care about and and giving them a voice in the process. And the listening post is very much the same. Um, it like Harkin is has its roots in radio, and, and um, it was piloted in New Orleans. And they have in New Orleans they have some public microphones that they, and they put out a, a question, I think it's on a weekly basis, they put out a question to the community and they invite people to go to those public microphones and record their answer to that question. But they also have a texting component. So as you're um, walking or driving around New Orleans, you'll see signs and they'll say things like, they may be silly, they may be things like, what are you having for dinner tonight? Or they may say, who are you mad at? Or what what are you most concerned about for the next hurricane or, you know, the, it runs the gamut really. And they ask people to text their answers to a number. And what that does is it creates a community conversation around these topics. And then what um, the reporter, Jesse Hardman, who founded the Listening Post does is he collects all of this feedback and this input and, and he develops reporting around it and continues this dialogue with the community about these issues that they've said really matter to them. And so the community feels that they're being asked what they care about and that and that what they've said they care about is is then being responded to. So they feel a sense of ownership in the process. And so they're two they're very similar in that um, they're very community driven initiatives. So this is kind of interesting because, you know, from a journalist standpoint, you know, oh, my industry is changing. Oh, this technology is changing the way I'm covering the news and I'm reporting the news and that I'm getting the news out to people. But sort of what you're saying is that hand in hand with success from a sustainability standpoint is this idea that we need to be better engaged than maybe we were in the past uh, with what our readers are doing, or our readers are interested in. Absolutely. You know, that's fundamentally what we believe, that newsrooms, you know, approach approach their communities in a more transactional way. You know, you, you give me information, I'll give you the journalism, we, we produce, you consume. And um, I think this is why we're seeing that people aren't willing to pay for the news. It's because they don't see it as relevant and meaningful to their lives, and they may not see their experiences reflected in the stories that are getting covered. Um, there are whole swaths of our community that aren't getting covered at all. And so people aren't going to pay for something that, that is not useful and valuable to them. Yeah. And I, th I think it's interesting, too, and if you look at the history of journalism, technology has often influence the shape and scope of journalism, whether it be the telegraph ushering in the inverted pyramid as a form of how we write stories, all the way to cable news bringing us the 24-hour news cycle. Today, we're at a moment where technology is 
very much participatory, you know, breaking up the kind of one-to-many style of broadcasting and putting us instead in touch with many people across networks that interact many-to-many. And that is changing journalism in ways that I think are really fundamental in terms of how we actually engage our communities and what their expectations are for their involvement in the journalism process too. So that participatory technology is also ushering in more participatory journalism, I think. Yeah, and the the technology is giving the reader, the viewer, uh, the ability to participate by being, in a sense, reporters, being able to tweet out and to be able to post things of the, uh, on their own on websites and blogs and on Facebook. Um, so they're used to the idea of having a voice in in the digital space. So why should they listen to you necessarily if you're not going to listen to them? Mm-hmm. So that's all solved. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> So how can, how can local news outlets do a better job at listening to the community? Uh, I mean, as I said before, I think that um, newsrooms often approach listening as a transaction, and, and we need to move beyond that transactional listening to something more transformational that helps reshape newsrooms and, and communities. So, you know, to do that, I think we have to make listening, you know, newsrooms have to make listening a part of the entire process. So, Rather than an editor deciding what stories get covered, there's an opportunity to hear what's important to the community. I mean, this this speaks directly to the Harkin and Listening Post models. You know, we also don't believe that listening should stop after a story gets published and, and that listening should go beyond comments. It's not just about comments. A lot, you know, we even know that lots of newsrooms are shutting down the comments, which we think is a really bad idea. Um, new, newsrooms should invite regular feedback through comments, but also through in-person events and other channels too, and then be responsive to that feedback. I mean, you know, fundamentally, this is, this is hard. It's culture shift, it's change. But what we are trying to do through the local news lab is really help newsrooms see the rewards of this kind of deeper engagement and listening to, to show them how, how this can work and how it can lead to more engaged and invested audiences. So one of the things that you uh, looked into also was how uh, networks can strengthen uh, a news outlet's uh, coverage, working with other news gatherers to, to sort of uh, bolster their coverage. Can you sort of give examples of what you've been able to work on there at the lab? Yeah, sure. I think that one of the things that I return to a lot is a report that came out of the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia, written by Clay Shirky and Emily Bell and Chris Anderson. And it was called the the post-industrial journalism. And I, I think about that a lot because, you know, especially at the local level, we're at a place where what used to be a lot of powerful, strong and influential media institutions have you know, been shaken, been weakened, and and sometimes closed and, and disappeared. And in its place, we're seeing a lot of small pieces. And we're seeing, you know, neighborhood blogs, local community sites, smaller newsrooms. We're seeing nonprofits that are affiliated with universities. We're seeing this wide-ranging array of models. But a lot of them are smaller, and a lot of them don't have the same institutional structure or strength that the institutions that they're replacing did. And so how do we get that strength back? How can we make sure that these new networks of small local sites can take on the institutions of government and big companies and other civic leaders that 
we need them to because those institutions of government and others aren't going away. So the institutions that we're trying to hold accountable are, are, are there while the institutions of journalism are changing. So we think that networks are a really powerful way to do that. And networks can look like a lot of things, but they tend to be collaborative rather than competitive. And they tend to look at how we can share strengths and recognize that um, we can add up the pieces and make it larger than the sum of its parts. So what we're doing in New Jersey, we've done things like a content sharing network, recognizing that the New Jersey Star-Ledger can't have boots on the ground in every community and that there's things that the Star-Ledger can do that some of our local community sites can't do. So where it makes sense, we've been able to actually share content across a network where somebody maybe in Morristown can use the courthouse reporting from a larger paper and the larger paper can take the great community human interest story from Morristown and use it on their site. So that content sharing was one of the early networks that we created. And it helped build a lot of trust between news organizations um, where they could start seeing each other as collaborators, at least in some places, rather than competitors. And now we've got this amazing work happening with the Center for Investigative Reporting, which is a national newsroom that's come in as a partner in New Jersey to work with 10 local newsrooms, everyone from the local public broadcasting outlets in New York City and Philly down to the hyper-local bilingual newspaper, New Brunswick Today, that I mentioned before. And they're reporting a series of stories on toxic sites across New Jersey. And uh, the Center for Investigative Reporting is sort of facilitating this enormous collaboration where they're sharing not just content, but reporting materials behind the scenes, story ideas, community engagement strategies, etc. And it's all sort of bubbling up through this uh, massive uh, investigative collaboration. And so when you look at something like the Spotlight movie and you wonder, how can we make sure that we're going to have people and institutions that can do long-term investigative reporting like that? I think we need to protect those kinds of places, but we also need to foster new models, these networked models that can then, you know, might not look like a spotlight team in one newsroom doing it, but might also be able to bring new diverse voices into the mix because we've got different people coming to the table. So the last thing I would say on networks is that we're also looking at how in a geographic area like New Jersey, we can share resources like backshops and administrative support all the departments that used to be built into a newsroom, marketing departments, legal departments, et cetera, administrative departments, accounting, and how we can actually provide shared backshop services that serve a whole bunch of people. 20 news sites can all use the same marketing firm or the same web developer. And all of a sudden, you've got somebody who's making a living by serving hyperlocal sites and gaining expertise because they know just what those hyperlocal sites need. We have this critical mass in New Jersey of so many hyper-local news sites that we think there's the possibility there to do some really interesting stuff with shared services. So you, one of the things you, you, we meant, you mentioned earlier was uh, in, the, in the revenue models was crowdfunding, but then I know also you talk in the report about uh, philanthropy, you know, helping out newsrooms and, and, and nonprofits to sort of cover these big stories or unique stories. Can you give examples of some of that? That's that you've looked into? Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of what we're trying to understand through this work is 
what role philanthropy can play, um, not just here in New Jersey, but for funders in other areas that are interested in supporting community news and information. What does that look like? What avenues might they take to support their local news outlets? So, you know, the, the landscape here in New Jersey is that the vast majority of news outlets here are for-profit sites, small for-profit sites. The ones that Josh laid out earlier, those are all for-profit sites. And, you know, I wouldn't say there are many funders, if any, open to supporting for-profit local sites, but we'd argue that most of these sites are mom-and-pop mom sites that are mission-driven and they exist to serve their communities, their community anchors. And so, in that spirit, they're no different than other nonprofits in a community. And so, you know, that's one one key takeaway that I would really urge other funders to think about is how supporting a local news outlet not only um, improves the health of the community, but it also improves all the other work that is um, that the funder cares about in the community. You know, it's supporting news and information improves their whole portfolio of grants. You know, I think another thing that we're really trying to do is a number of experiments that help. I feel like we're taking on the risk of trying to understand what sustainability looks like so that other funders who are interested in this work won't won't have to take on so much risk and won't won't allow that risk to keep them from from taking on this work. Um, because, you know, philanthropy is traditional philanthropy anyway, is very risk averse. And it's and it's also very slow moving and misses a lot of opportunities to to try things out um, as they arise. And so um, those are other ways that we are exploring how philanthropy might be more responsive to supporting community news and information. And then I think one other one other key takeaway for me that I would point out to is just that um, from the very beginning of this work, we have approached it as funding infrastructure of the local news ecosystem here in New Jersey, as opposed to funding a beat or beats that advance our foundation's program areas. Because what we have been interested in from the beginning is supporting, creating and supporting something of lasting value here in New Jersey. And I think too often funders will fund a beat for a given period of time and then move on to something else. And that doesn't create, that doesn't create a sustainable approach over time. And so what we've cared about, and Josh has spoken to this quite a bit already, but around building networks of support and, and collaboration and connectivity throughout the whole ecosystem in New Jersey in order to grow and strengthen the ecosystem itself because we care about improving communities across New Jersey and we see a strong ecosystem that serves the whole uh, state is what's really going to improve people's lives here in New Jersey and not if we were simply investing in beats around you know, we, we, we fund arts and we fund education and we fund environmental groups. If we were funding those beats, we don't think that that would have nearly the same impact as actually investing in the long-term sustainability of local journalism here in New Jersey. 
So looking back at the last 18 months, uh, each of you, do you have a, a particular success story that, that you, you know, that, that you feel really good about? Hmm. That's a good question. I ask them occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, um, there's one that, that I think says a lot about the work that we've done and that just the news just came down recently. So I'm, I'm very excited about it, which is that Morristown Green, this one person, local news site, former Star Ledger journalist, Kevin Coughlin, he's been working really hard to strengthen his ability to sell ads and to diversify his revenue stream. He is a journalist at heart. He has a list of stories he wants to do that is a mile long. And it's really hard for him to stop doing the reporting to go do the business side of the business. And um, recently, he just locked in a $15,000 year-long deal with a local advertiser, um, really a partner, the Tourism Bureau locally, that's going to allow him to count on some revenue across the whole year, really deepen and build on a bunch of the skills that he's been developing, like the video production stuff and other pieces of work that we've been doing together, and really has opened his mind to a model um, somewhat like what the Charlotte Agenda is doing uh, in Charlotte down south, where you know you could look at really deepening and having some a few key partnerships, um, not just display ads, but actual real partnerships with key people in the community that could help fund a layer of infrastructure on the site that allows you to do some really creative stuff. And so that deal came out of a lot of coaching and mentoring together with me, as well as our sales academy, his investment in vi new video equipment, and a whole bunch of pieces kind of came together from the work we were doing to open up a possibility that he had never really explored before and that I think suggests new opportunities to come down the line. So I'm really excited for Kevin and for what this means for him and his work, but also really glad to see that it's not just any one piece or activity that we've done paying off. It's the combined efforts of all these different pieces uh, that kind of finally fit the right mold and is working out for him. So Molly, do you have an answer or you want me to? Yeah. To okay. Yeah. So um, a lot of my focus is trying to understand how this work also connects across the program areas at Dodge, because we do fund other areas. As I mentioned, we fund arts, um, education and environment uh, nonprofits across the state. And I think what's been gratifying for me is to see these collaborative projects that are building networks and are starting to open the eyes of other nonprofits in communities about the importance of community information and engagement. And so Josh alluded to the Center for Investigative Reporting uh, project earlier, and I would really point to that as Something that I think we're really proud of and excited about as we continue supporting this work. So not only is it gratifying to see that it's really quite a large scale collaboration that it involves so many news organizations, you know, that itself speaks to um, some success we've had about developing a more connected and collaborative ecosystem that I don't think could have happened five years ago. But there are also other elements of this project that are super exciting for us that relate to how we're thinking about using arts as alternative storytelling methods to help illuminate these issues around 
toxic sites in New Jersey. So the Center for Investigative Reporting is commissioning a play with a theater group here called George Street Playhouse. And they're going to be performing a play that helps the community understand the impact of these small toxic sites. And then, you know, the our environmental community is also involved in this because they're the experts here. They know they know where these sites are, they know what the impacts are on the community, and so they're very engaged in this as well. And um, it's a real success story for how Dodge can fund projects that that bring together cross-sector partnerships, you know, interests that overlap in all of our program areas and have a much bigger impact as a result in our communities because you've got so many um, non-traditional partners at the table. And I really applaud CIR for this work because they're real pioneers when it comes to thinking about the ways that that journalism can better engage community and, and really use creative storytelling practices to make these issues come alive in a way that helps community understand understand the complexities of issues that they might not understand or really even care about if they were just reading about it on their phone or on their laptops. Cool. So what's what's next for uh, the local news lab? What are you guys going to be doing? Well, we have a lot more a lot more work to do. You know, I think we both feel like we're still in many ways still in the early stages of this work. We're still proving out our theories around what it takes to develop a diversity of revenue streams about exactly how newsrooms can go about being um, better listeners and better engage with their communities. So there's a lot of uh, experimentation we still have to do on both of those fronts. I think a lot of um, this year, a lot of the work we're doing is in part having some patience with what we have been teeing up over the last 18 months and letting it play out a little bit. Josh, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I would say that when we set out to start this project, we were often asked if we were trying to save local journalism. And I think Molly and I both believe that there is no silver bullet and we're not trying to create a recipe for saving journalism. What we're trying to do is to look at how journalists can be even more fundamental and fundamentally a part of their communities and and making it so that journalism is so intricately tied to the life and the health of communities that it's not us saving journalism, it's our communities stepping up to save journalism through their own participation, support, uh, investment in it. And so what that looks like, I think, is not coming out at the end of this time at the local news lab with a with a manual for how journalists should structure their businesses. You know, we're not going to say to any newsroom, here is the four revenue streams you should be doing. What we hope to be able to say is, Here's some strategies for listening to your communities and for taking the pulse of your communities so that you can design a business model using you know, this menu of items 
that makes sense for you. We really think that the business model has to be relevant to the local community and has to respond to the unique needs of that community. And the only way we identify those needs is by listening better. And so we're going to be putting out a whole bunch of tools and resources around how newsrooms can do that kind of listening and then really design business models and choose revenue strategies that are rooted in that kind of problem-solving, community-driven ideas. Because that, I think, is really the key, is not a one-size-fits-all, but a helping everybody figure out what's right for them. Okay. You know, I'm really going to look forward to these uh, these tools and other reports that you guys are going to put out. I think what you've done so far has been, you know, you're doing the Lord's work, I guess. And <laughs> when it comes to, to local journalism, you're, 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 you're trying things out, you're giving people some ideas, and, and hopefully, yeah, maybe not save journalism, but at least help people to figure out what works best for them and, and come up with a formula that uh, keeps them sustainable and doing the good work of journalists need to be doing. Thanks. Thanks a lot for uh, coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Next time on It's All Journalism. Those are the types of, uh, you know, it's a great example. And it's the types of, uh, you know, situations that journalists have, uh, you know, ha- have found themselves in having to, you know, kind of remind this, uh, you know, this administration, hey, remember, you, you said you were going to be transparent and open. Uh, and uh, it just, it, it, it obviously just does not apply to, you know, to documents. So, you know, it, it's important that, uh, you know, that, that I feel to remind people that, uh, you know, th- this administration does not live up to its promise. In our next episode, I talked to Jason Leopold, senior investigative reporter at Vice News, about how the Obama administration scuttled legislation aimed at fixing the broken Freedom of Information Act. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This week's podcast was produced by Amber Healy, Michael O'Connell, and Nicole Lagrisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.